Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of our Lord. I want you to recall the setting of our passage. Remember that Paul is writing to a church that he is not worshipped with. He has not been a part of their congregational life together. In the very last chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 16, he's going to uh, rattle off several names of people in the church at Rome or associated with the church at Rome. But don't forget, he has not been to Rome. He has not met these individuals nor participated in her worshiping life together. And yet here, what Paul seems to be doing is showing them a snapshot of a perfect church, or we might say a snapshot of a church that is in perfect working order. That's really what verses 3 through 8 are. They're a picture of a church, a church that is doing what a church ought to be doing as it serves Jesus Christ, the Savior of the church. And as Paul shows this uh, perfect picture of the functioning church, one wonders, at least I wonder, if some in the Roman congregation were perhaps offended. Who is this Paul? Teaching us doctrine, but also uh, giving us this picture of what we ought to be functioning as, as a church? telling us how we ought to behave. There's a, there's a sense in which uh, one or two in the church might think that Paul is being just a little bit presumptuous. We will hear your teaching, but don't tell us how to behave. Don't tell us how to function. We might hear uh, slightly similar arguments today where a church might complain uh, to outside influences that are really godly because that church believes that her local ministries are so unique no one quite understands her. No one quite understands the people in her church or the needs of her community. And to be sure, churches uh, are certainly to be uh, unique and different in many ways. It's important for a church to have a vision that describes how God has equipped them to reach into their communities to make Christ Jesus known. But here Paul is, showing a a snapshot of this is what a well-functioning church looks like, even though he's never met them. Has he now offended them? What Paul is saying with this snapshot is he's saying that by God's grace... And only by God's grace, we are members of the body of Christ. And uh, Paul draws from that, that by that same grace, we serve Christ when we serve the needs of his body. By that same grace, converting grace, 
By God's grace, we serve Christ by serving the needs of his body. This is a picture of God's sanctifying grace. I want to say three things in this passage, and I want to finish with three applications and a great opportunity that we have as a church. The outline of the sermon is this. Uh, I want to begin with the need for God's grace, that's where Paul begins, and then the function of God's grace, and then seven examples of God's grace. Need, function, and seven examples. First, uh, the need for God's grace. Look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say. Isn't that remarkable? Paul is telling the Roman Christians right from the very beginning that he is speaking according to a grace that is given to him. We know that grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is something that can never be earned. And this is how Paul begins this discussion. I think that he begins with a great deal of modesty and pastoral care for them. If Paul has been a Christian for uh, perhaps as many as 30 years at the point that he's writing this letter, he knows that the grace that, uh, the, the, that's the grace of God that has converted him, but he also knows over those 30 years that this converting grace is a sanctifying grace. And that's what he seems to be referring to here in verse 3. He's been a Christian for a number of years. He knows that the grace of God has lived with him for all of those years, that the grace of God is living with him now, teaching him even now how to live as a Christian and also what to expect in the life of the church. This is God's sanctifying grace. For by the grace given to me, to me, I say. And Paul also knows that this same grace is present with all of those who believe. He says, I say this to everyone among you. Sometimes we just need to pay very close attention to what God's Word tells us in order to flesh out the gravity of what's right before our eyes. He says he is addressing everyone among you, every Christian in Rome. Sometimes this very passage has been used to focus on the differences of the members in the church rather than that crucial element that makes them similar to one another, that each is a recipient of God's sanctifying grace, whether you have been walking with God for 30 years or 30 hours. Now for the hard part. Paul goes on, to properly understand who we are in light of that grace, well, it's actually a challenge. Let's not skip too far forward to discern what our gifts are and how to use them before we consider this. We begin here. Paul says that we're to be the kind of people who understand ourselves as recipients of God's grace, to understand ourselves in light of God's grace. And in Paul's phrasing, Paul says that we're to understand ourselves with sober judgment. That's his phrase. Being able to step outside of ourselves for just a moment and to understand ourselves objectively. Well, isn't that something that human beings are known for? It's the theory of mind. It's something that makes humans separate from the animal kingdom, that they are able to step outside of themselves and to understand themselves objectively. It seems rather silly, but think about this. Uh, Does a dog ever sit and ponder to himself this thought? I wonder why it is that I always bark when the door doorbell is rung. No one dangerous has ever entered the house that way before. The homeowner always goes straight to the door. 
My bark only alerts someone to an alert that has already sounded. It's actually pointless to bark, or so it seems, and I wonder why I do it. Our dogs don't think that way. But we actually have an an ability, Paul is assuming, to to get outside of ourselves and to think about ourselves in a way that is not uh, immediate and visceral, uh, in a way that is not just filled with uh, passion and emotion. Uh, Paul says uh, that we are to think about ourselves soberly. (laughs) We actually can do that, but oftentimes we're no more sober than my pet schnauzer. I mean, thinking soberly about ourselves requires God's grace and mercy. It's impossible otherwise. We refuse to acknowledge truths about ourselves. We inflate ourselves. We deflate others. We fight to defend false things that we believe about ourselves. Thinking soberly about ourselves, I want us to consider as a challenge that requires God's grace. Do we need God's grace? Oh, absolutely we do. You know, Paul here seems to be playing with the Roman Christians. He literally says this in verse 3. He says, Do not think more highly than what it is necessary to think, but think in order to think soberly. That's a very wooden, literal translation of what Paul is saying. He's playing with this word think, and he uses it uh, over and over again. He understands how hard it is for us to think soberly about ourselves, to understand ourselves in the light of free grace. And so Paul seems here to be speaking to the Roman Christians with a raised eyebrow. Think soberly about yourselves. But you'll need God's grace to do so. One thing you can count on to do this, God's grace. And Paul says then, don't think too highly of yourself. There's no reason why we cannot also understand Paul to be saying when he says, do not think too highly of yourself. He is also saying, be careful not to think too lowly of your brother and your sister. Be careful. In light of God's grace... Things are altered. The work of God's grace is key to understanding who you are. You and I are nothing apart from God's grace. Everything that we have, everything that we are, is a result of God's grace. This is how a Christian ought to think of themselves. This is true for me. It is true for you. Grace is what keeps us from thinking too highly of ourselves. This is what Paul means by each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This could mean this measure of faith. This could mean faith as a thing outside of ourselves. Faith being the truth of the gospel that is our measuring rod or our standard. We think about ourselves in comparison to that standard of God's working of the gospel. Or it could mean more personal. It could be more personal as I think it is. It could mean that we, as mature in our faith, as we grow, as we develop as Christians, we are better able to soberly understand ourselves and others and the ways in which God has equipped us for his service. It's something, Christian, that we ought to expect to grow over the life of our time following Jesus. That we would grow in our ability to think soberly of ourselves, not too highly of ourselves, and not lowly of our brothers and sisters. Isn't that the source of a great deal of frustration in the church? 
our brothers and sisters don't seem to be quite as mature as we'd like them to be. Not quite as mature as we'd like them to be at this particular moment when they're hurting me. But Paul seems to be very clear uh, in my mind that when we are understanding the ability to think soberly about ourselves, we acknowledge that it's difficult. We acknowledge that we need God's God's grace, and we acknowledge that it's something that we get better at over time by his mercy. Paul has already said in Romans 12, too, that we Christian people are not to be conformed to this world, but rather transformed by the renewing of our minds. I think Paul wants us to consider that. Do you think that the world cares about how you understand yourself? Think about that. Does the world care about how you understand yourself? Is there a pattern of self-understanding that the world sells to us at a discounted rate? Well, most certainly the world permits us to be self-seeking and prideful. But not only this, the world will praise us for our niceness and our perceived humility. The, the world is moral. The world will excuse our ugliness and praise our pridefulness. The world has moral and ethical opinions about us. Do you think that the world cares how you understand yourself? Yes, Indeed. And what we need is we need to, by God's grace, understand ourselves in light of who he is rather than in light of the patterns of the world. To think soberly about ourselves is not a plea for cool reason. It is a plea for relishing the grace of God, understanding God, understanding his mercy, knowing his will is what renews the mind and enables us to think soberly about ourselves, you, my brother and my sister, everything that you are as a Christian is a product of the grace of the Creator, the one true God who has drawn you to Himself by the power of the Gospel. And if we get lost in that reality, you and I, we will finally begin to think soberly about ourselves. And we will avoid thinking too highly of ourselves, and too lowly of our brothers and sisters. This is how God's grace works. We're not saved to be able to walk around the world and boast about having been saved. We are saved that we might be united to Jesus Christ and in his life have life here, that we might grow in that grace, as Peter says. Well, that is the need that we have for God's grace. What about the function of God's grace? Verses 4 and 5. And Paul seems to switch gears quickly from the one to the many. From speaking to an individual or a reality about individuals to now the nature of the many, the individuals together. In fact, there is a cataclysmic reality here that the church body is only as healthy as the members of that body are able to think soberly about themselves and refuse to elevate themselves. Does that, does that sound odd to you? It sounds odd to me. I hope it sounds odd to you. That the church body is only as healthy as the members of that body are able to think soberly about themselves and not too highly. Paul says in verse 4, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, 
are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul is asking us to do something that is actually rather simple. He's asking us to imagine a single physical body. That body has a multitude of members. My body has a multitude of members. The members aren't listed here, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul calls out certain members of a physical body, a foot, a hand, an ear, an eye. And so we quickly get the picture. He wants us to think of the metaphor of an individual physical body. And the members that make up that body, they're different. How? They're different as to function. They're different as to function. The members do not all have the same function, Paul says. And this makes plain sense. It ought to make plain sense. Notice that Paul calls out a specific difference. It's the doing of the member, the function. It's the deed of that member. Let's not forget the great similarity of the members, that all of the members, foot, hand, uh, ear, eye, all of the members actually receive, receive their life from the same source. But it's the function and the doing that is different, even while a life source is the same. That'll be important later. The whole point of any metaphor is to help us understand something more complex. And Paul has begun with a picture merely of a physical body. Did you think that the church body would be infinitely more complex than the human body? Normally, that's how metaphors work. We, we start with something that's simple that everyone knows that we might then explain something that is complex. And, and we should be uh, utterly uh, mesmerized by God's creative hand in creation. The sciences have so much to teach us about how God has fashioned the world, how amazing the world is. God's material realm, beyond our imagination... And yet Paul uses the picture of the physical body to show us something even more mesmerizing. The working of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. It's very appropriate that this passage would fall closely on the heels of Paul saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So quickly we think of those doxological words as being words about the physical creation. But what if those words apply to the life of the body of Jesus in the visible church on earth? Well, first of all, we know that Paul has devoted the bulk of Romans 1 through 8 and, and really Romans 1 through 11, telling us that the power of the gospel is a power that unites us to Jesus Christ in salvation. Our justification is nothing short of having been united to him in the power of the cross, reconciled with God because of the life that we live in Christ Jesus. That's what a justified person is, someone who is united to Christ. That Paul says here in verse 5 that we as Christian people are also one body in Christ. When we become Christians, we don't become one in a dark virtual reality world waiting for things to be uh, added. We are joined with others in the body of Jesus. We are united to Christ, but we're also united alongside others. Paul uses another image for this in Romans 11, and we might say it this way. We might say that we are grafted into the eternal vine. 
along with other branches also attached to that eternal vine. And so Paul also puts it another way, just to be very clear so that we understand this. Look what Paul says. He says, we are individually members of one another. Individually members of one another. You hear God's God's converting grace here, that he has saved me as a Christian, but he has united me not only to Christ, he's united me to others. And we have to keep going back to the metaphor to grasp this because the eye actually doesn't do the work uh, merely of the eye. And the foot has to know how to do the work of the foot because the eye is doing the work of the eye. Does that make sense? Let me let me try again. It's because the ear does the work of the ear that the eye knows how to do the work of the eye. The eye hears and the head turns that the eye might see. The members, they actually belong to one another as to their function, even as they belong to God as their life source. Let's see if we can't summarize this. This seems to be what Paul is doing in verses 4 and 5. The body is a living whole with a multitude of members. The body, a living whole with a multitude of members. And the individual members all exist because of the life of the body. The the members all have the ability to function differently according to how they have been made. Yet it is impossible for the members to live in isolation from other members. They actually belong to each other such that one member has the power to sustain and care for another member. And one member has the ability to submit to and be cared for by another member. Isn't that just a beautiful picture? God's grace shown in the functioning of the members of the body is God's grace shown in the functioning of the church body. You see what I mean when I said that Paul is giving to the Roman Christians this perfect picture of a church, that all of us can hear this and we can nod and smile. And yet it is so difficult to live this way. And it is so difficult to support our brothers and sisters to live this way. And that may be why Paul, just after introducing the function of God's grace in the life of the church, he gives some examples, verses 6 through 8. And the examples are not meant to be uh, exhaustive. Paul is giving us examples, almost treating us as children, that we might understand a metaphor that on the surface is very, very clear. But that metaphor is impossible to realize in the life of the church apart from God's grace. So, Paul gives us examples. Remember, Paul is addressing the entire church body, and we need to turn back to verse 3, I say to everyone... And so when he uses the word gifts here, he's saying that every member of the church has gifts. We cannot understand verses 6 through 8 until we understand that God is addressing every member of the church body. And what he means is that every member of the church body, regardless of their maturity, regardless of the length of time that they have followed Jesus Christ, they are people who have received gifts. Quoting John Stott, we need to remember uh, what Paul has already taught on this metaphor of the body as we apply it here. The origin of the body's members are God's grace. The purpose of the body's members are to care for other members. And the unity of the body's members are a variety, but they function in harmony. I love that. 
the body's origin, or the, the member's origin, the member's purpose, and the member's unity within the body. That has to be floating in the back of, my, of our minds when Paul says the following. He says in verse 6 that having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. This represents every Christian. They have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, there's a play on words here. Just like verse 3 uses the word think over and over again in all of its forms. Listen to what Paul says in the Greek here in verse 6. He says, having gifts, charisma, that differ according to grace, charis. The word gift and the word grace sound very similar in Greek, and they're related What Paul is saying is that what is true for the body having many members is true for the church having individuals bringing many gifts. God's grace is evidenced in those gifts. Every member of the church has gifts. And the origin of these gifts is the same. The the charismata, the gifts, come from charis, God's grace. And he goes on, he says that the purpose of these gifts is not the self, but the good of the other members of the body. And then finally, the unity of these gifts is absolutely critical. The gifts, coming as they do from God's grace, must function in a way that is pleasing to him and not according to our own will. And that's going to require sober thinking. We don't want to make this too muddy, but this is really a beautiful picture of the church. God giving us the grace of salvation, but also showing his grace in a variety of gifts that are to be used to uh, show uh, who God is by being used for the good of others rather than the good of self. And as all of us do that, we, uh, by God's grace, uh, have a picture of the unity of the church functioning as a healthy body. But none of this will happen without God's grace helping us to Think about ourselves in light of salvation. This topic, on the one hand, is so simple, so easy to understand. We get how the human body works, at least get to the degree that's necessary to understand the metaphor. But when we go beyond that and we think about the church and we think about uh, ourselves as being an individual member in that church, And that I'm not here for myself, I'm here for my brothers and sisters. That the things that I am able to do, I am able to do by God's grace. And the things that I am able to do, I am to use to support and encourage others so that God's grace would be witnessed by them as well. And then if you step back, this whole body actually functions like a physical body and that it grows in health, it matures over time. By God's grace, it grows and and becomes stronger. On the one hand, it is so easy to understand. On the other hand, it is so complex. What does Paul mean here? We learn a little bit, but when we look at the gifts themselves, he gives us an example of three speaking gifts and four serving gifts. He's certainly not being exhaustive here. He's not uh, saying, I know who you are as a Roman church, and I can pick out these seven gifts and seven members uh, in the church. 
He's not trying to be uh, exhaustive. He doesn't even know the congregation. He's assuming that, that all of these seven are functioning in every church, and they're functioning here in the church at Rome, and they have been ever since the church was planted. He's not trying to be exhaustive. And so the speaking gifts he lists are prophecy and exhortation and teaching. It's hard to know to be sure exactly what he means by prophecy. But the other gifts are so very common, aren't they? Aren't the other gifts common? You know exactly what he's talking about. I suspect that the word prophecy ought to refer to something that also is a common action in the life of a church. A common action that Paul can just assume is happening in the church at Rome, though he's never worshipped with them. I suspect that prophecy uh, refers to something that is more common and less about uh, prediction or miraculous revelation. The word here for prophecy, not because of its, uh, uh, because of its uh, form, the kind of word it is, but certainly prophecy here isn't referring to speaking in tongues. That would be uh, a stretch. I think 1 Corinthians 14 verse 5 is proof of that. But it is some kind of a speaking gift. It, it seems rather natural uh, to me to attach prophecy to discerning what is the will of God. We've read that in verse 2, to seeing this, this phrase of prophecy to refer to a right understanding of God's will. Uh, Calvin and many of the reformers said it this way, that this is a peculiar faculty of explaining God's word, as if uh, God's word is easier to explain now that the prophecies and oracles of God have been completed in Christ and in his gospel. Because of the gospel, we understand God's word more clearly. And it uh, seems as though Paul is referring to that kind of action, clear explanation of God's word. And so there's three speaking gifts, but there's four service gifts He says uh, service outright and then contribution or sharing of one's possessions. And then he refers to uh, leadership, guidance, and then to special actions of compassion. Three speaking and four having to do with service. And on some level, all of us possess certain aspects of these gifts. Uh, Teaching is required of every Christian. Service is required of every Christian But Paul seems to be describing these gifts as they stand out in the life of the church as needed by the church, but also exhibited more and more by the individuals of the church. And so he calls out three speaking and four serving. And he seems to be doing a couple of things with these lists. First, he's calling out distinctive actions in the church. We should expect these things to be happening in the church. I mean, he lists seven, but it could have been a shorter list. We find that in Ephesians 4. And it could have been a longer list. We find that in in 1 Corinthians 12. But he wants the Roman Christians to understand that these are distinctive actions that ought to be present in every church. That's one of the things he's doing by listing the seven. But another thing that he's doing is he's describing one of the realities that these gifts are happening in varying degrees. The paradigm seems to be this, just as we grow in our ability to think soberly about ourselves, as we mature as Christians and understand ourselves in light of God's grace, 
so too do we grow in our ability to use our grace-filled gifts for others and for the body as a whole. It's something that we expect to happen in degrees over time. That's why Paul lists out these seven to show us that they all ought to be present in the life of the church and that they're all going to happen by God's varying grace, hopefully more and more over time, not less and less. Now, there's some striking applications in all of this. He's given us examples. Let's apply those examples. I think there's three applications, and then there's one great opportunity for the life of the church. Three very quick applications. If I may, can I address those of you who are here this morning who feel that you are very well practiced in your giftedness? You know your gifts, your one or two or three gifts, and you've practiced them a lot, and you are practicing them a lot here in the life of this congregation. I want to address you. Every Christian here has been gifted by God's grace. Those of you who think that you are particularly gifted, dramatically gifted, would you pause for a moment? And would you remember that every believer is gifted? Would you peer deeply into their eyes, not with eyes of chastisement, but eyes of encouragement? You know that every Christian is given gifts by God's grace to be exercised in the life of the church, would you pause so that you can encourage what you see in others, whether in small degree or in minuscule degree? Pay attention to the degrees of giftedness around you. Every Christian who professes faith in Jesus Christ is a person who, out of the power of that profession of faith in the work of the gospel, has been gifted by the great giver of gifts. So that's an application for those who are particularly confident in your giftedness. And then I want to address those whose gifts are speaking gifts. Speaking gifts in our tribe, in uh, the PCA, uh, maybe in Presbyterian and Reformed theology, uh, speaking gifts seem to get an awful lot of attention. And so for those with speaking gifts... Would you please pause as well? And would you remember those who are more secretly gifted in gifts of service and mercy? According to Paul, these are charismata, grace-given gifts just like yours. But they're quiet. They're hard to discern. You're sometimes not even aware of them. Would you, those with speaking gifts, pay attention to and encourage those who have gifts of service and encourage them and submit to them. And then for all of us, an application for us as a church body for which the leaders of our church have a special opportunity. All of us as Christians ought to be throwing ourselves into the life of this church body. All of us. We are not called to come here and to merely consume God's word as it is taught. We are not, we are not called to come here and simply live and dwell upon our own personal edification. We're called to be here and to serve, to care for this glorious, beautiful body of Jesus Christ. The work of the gospel in your life is working in others' lives. And all of us need to throw ourselves into the life of this church. I have a couple of uh, encouragements for that. I would encourage you to get to know as many people as you can 
as awkward as that is, as, as hard as that is, we sometimes even fall into ruts where we're only spending time with the same people. I would encourage you to get to know as many people as you can. Sunday school is a great opportunity for edification, but it's a great opportunity for fellowship and getting to know people. Our church has five ministry teams. The doors are wide open for you to become a part of those ministry teams and watch others be near others who are serving the church body that you might grow in your ability to serve the church body. Throw yourself into the life of this particular congregation. Now, all of this, these three applications... I want to summarize with a great opportunity, and I want to ask this. You little theologians who are drawing a snapshot. Paul has given what seems to be a generic snapshot of a well-functioning church. Where do you think Paul got this picture of a church? Do you think that he got this picture from Antioch? Paul was an intern in Antioch for several years, working alongside Barnabas. Antioch was a special church. It was a church where Christians were first called Christians. Do you suppose... Some 30 years ago, Paul is remembering how that church worked. And he took a picture, and he's giving that picture to the church at Rome. Well, it could be that Paul is thinking about the church in Jerusalem. When you look at Acts chapter 15, you see the church in Jerusalem uh, uh, taking uh, under its wings other churches, smaller churches, and and encouraging those churches, uh, teaching those churches. And it could be that that church in Jerusalem, that's the church that Paul took a snapshot of and then gave that to the Roman Christians. Or it could be a congregation or two in Macedonia. Paul has boasted about those Macedonian churches that were able to give so much money uh, to the cause of famine relief uh, in uh, the uh, church at large. Paul praised those churches for giving a great deal of money in times of great affliction. It could be that's where Paul got the picture and then gives a snapshot to the Roman Christians. Here at Covenant Presbyterian Church, we have a great opportunity by God's grace Because the snapshot that Paul gives to the church at Rome is none of those three congregations. The snapshot is a picture of the one who understood himself soberly and perfectly. The snapshot is a picture of the one who received grace upon grace from God, being made full in the Spirit. The snapshot that Paul gives to the church at Rome is the one who employed every grace of God that he was given for the betterment of others, the care for others, even for all eternity. The snapshot that Paul has taken and then delivered to the church at Rome is the one who gave all that he is for the will of God for his children. Paul is showing us here in Romans 12 what he has already shown us in Romans 1 through 11. The Christ who saves There is no perfect church on earth, but there is a perfect and living and reigning head of that church, Jesus Christ. And that's the picture. And here's our great opportunity as a small church here in East Brainerd. We have an opportunity in our life together as a church made up of people who have been saved by God's grace and are persevering and being sustained by God's grace, we have an opportunity in our life together to make Christ known to others. I've left you with three applications, but think of the great opportunity that we have. Thinking highly of yourself is dangerous territory when we have an opportunity in the life of this body to make Christ known.
We are members of the body of Christ by God's grace. And by, God, by God's grace, we serve Christ by serving the needs of his body. And when we do that, we make him known. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for speaking to us in this word, the reading, the preaching, and in the application. Send us forward to make Christ known. In his name, amen.